Suede. I am Sarah Osteen, and today we're going to be talking about the concept of influence and power and how they show up in my friend Debbie Goldstein's work around difficult conversations and coaching. And so before I do a quick introduction, I just wanted to say, Debbie, thanks so much for being on with me today. Oh, so happy to be here. So Debbie is a partner at Triad Consulting uh, and also teaches at Harvard Law School and at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, So she's got her JD. She's a fascinating and brilliant person. Um, Mainly for me, she's also one of my my oldest friends. And we spent a lot of, of our 30s running around Boston and having fun. And unfortunately, she lives on the other side of the country. But uh, I'm lucky to get to catch up with her from time to time, and I appreciate her doing this podcast with me today. I couldn't be happier <laughs> and prouder of you for this podcast. It's great. Oh, well, thank you. So we both coach people. I think Debbie got into it a little bit earlier than I did and has a, a big practice with a lot of senior folks. And also the, your work at Triad is really focused around difficult conversations and in fact is a, a leader in that area. So just to start off, I, I want curious to know how influence plays into the concept of difficult conversations, particularly when you are coaching people at the very senior level. Yeah, um, influence is always at play (laughs) Um, because I think a lot of times the very nature of what makes a conversation so hard is, first of all, that there's, there's emotion involved. Either we're feeling emotionally triggered or they are. But the reality is what we're often doing in these difficult conversations is trying to influence each other, that this is the direction this company should go, that this is the decision we should make, that this is the vision we should have for our team, that this is the product we should develop or the product we should kill. Um, And so I find in my coaching and kind of teamwork that influence is always here. Um, And the challenge when I'm in individual coaching relationships is that when people try to influence, they tend to push harder. Let me say it louder. Let me give you more data. Let me offer another spreadsheet. They're sort of just pushing information when actually what really helps you influence is to spend more time asking questions, getting curious, understanding what's causing the person you are trying to influence to say no, to resist your influence. Um, And I find that that's a lot of where I'm spending my time in my coaching work is to really help uh, my coachees understand what are the needs, wants, concerns, pressures that the other constituencies that they're trying to influence, what's causing them to say no or what's causing them to resist or what's causing them to think this is not a good idea. Um, So I find that it shows up everywhere all the time. What are some of the common themes around difficult conversations at those sort of senior executive levels? I mean, obviously the topics must vary, but are there some common themes uh, as it relates to really having those difficult conversations? Yeah, I mean, the it's funny because we say that the definition of a difficult conversation is a subjective one. It's any conversation that is difficult for you. So any, you know, any, any conversation that gives you sweaty palms, any conversation that keeps you up at night, any conversation that you would like to outsource. And I think what's so interesting is that as I work with 
senior executives and I'm also I'm often coming in at like the you know C-suite or executive director of a nonprofit level um, is that they have the same fantasy, frankly, that I think I had, which is this notion that like, oh, oh yeah, it's it's once I get to run this place, then I'm not going to have the difficult conversations anymore. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be promoted out of the difficult conversations. And what I have myself discovered as someone who helps to run a company, um, but what I see in spades when I'm helping people who run really large, um, much larger companies than my own, is that actually the more senior you get, the larger number of difficult conversations conversations you have, the larger percentage of your day you're spending having them, and the higher stakes they are. So it's no longer the sort of ticky-tack little things. It's like vision. It's like, is is our company going to open a new office or worse yet, are we going to lay off a percentage of our workforce? Um, are we going to go public or are we going to be acquired? So all the, the conversations that I'm having, helping people have are really, really high stakes and impact not just them, of course, but a huge swath of the people who work there. And then some of them, if they're publicly held, they're shareholders and sort of the public writ large. So so the, the as you said, the topic of each conversation may vary, but they're dealing with really high stakes issues that impact large people and large numbers of people. And the thing that I find repeatedly, um, and, and I'm sure you've had this too, Sarah, I'd be curious to hear how you have experienced it, is that once you're kind of at the top of an organization, if you're the CEO, if you're the executive director, it's a really lonely job. <laughs> and I think that's why coaches are so popular now for folks at that level, because they don't have peer colleagues in the same way that even one layer down, those folks have peer colleagues. And I think in some ways, just having someone to speak really candidly with and share your fears and your vulnerabilities and your, I actually don't really know what the hell I'm doing, um, is is really powerful and a very important role that I find that I'm often playing for the sort of top of the house folks that I coach. That's such an interesting point. They often don't receive uh, like feedback or you know, they don't receive formal feedback once you get to a certain level. So there's really not even that opportunity. Exactly. Well, that's I, yes. And so the work that I do is a lot in difficult conversations, but my um, business partners also wrote a book about feedback called Thanks for the Feedback. And so a lot of my work also revolves around feedback. And that is a point that I often make to senior people, which is, yeah, the challenge for you is that you're often not getting good candid feedback. And let's be clear, it is not because people don't have it for you. Like everyone has a secret list that they are holding. They talk about it when they're in the lunchrooms and the kitchen and the water coolers and those little fancy coffee machines that every company has now. Um, (laughs) So they have the feedback for you. It's just, are you open, receptive, solicitous of it? And of course, so many people as they become more senior are not, um, which is a lot of some of the work that I'm also trying to do with the people that I coach. So to loop back to the comment that you made about the fact that one of the key ways to influence other people while having a difficult conversation is around asking questions. If you're looking at conversations that occur at the senior level and there's so much at stake, you know, I guess this is sort of an obvious point, but it must 
become even harder at that point to engage and ask questions. It must be even more tempting to just sort of want to dictate. Yes, yes. And I see that a lot. And I hear that a lot of, you know what, they just need to get on board. And then it's like, wait, why aren't they getting on board? And I was like, oh, I think you've answered your question with your attitude in your first statement, <laughs> right? Like right. having even this notion of they just need to get on board or y'all just need to align around this vision. It's like, well, that actually just isn't how human psychology works. And so you can be right or you can be effective, and if it were me running this organization, I would want to be effective. And so what we just know from all sorts of really interesting, you know, neuroscience and brain research um, and just, you know, all the amazing books um, on psychology that have come out in the last 20 years, sort of the field has been exploding, is that people need to be included. They need to have their ideas um, solicited and sought. They need to feel respected. They need status conferred. They need to feel like they have affiliation in their decisions um, in order to get on board. And so I agree with you. When I when I first come in, especially if I'm working with sort of teams, I'll come in to work with like a C-suite or a you know early development drug team. And when I watch their meetings, it's just, and I, if I were to code how each person is talking with just even a simple, is this advocacy? Are you talking, pushing, telling, or is it inquiry? Are you asking questions or gathering information? It's like straight A's. It's like advocacy, 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 like repeated. It's just an hour of advocacy. And then what inevitably happens, of course, is that people leave that meeting feeling unheard, dissatisfied, and then they each have their mini meetings after the meeting where they all talk about what a waste of time that meeting was and then get the real work done. Um, and it's infuriating and I can't believe just how it is – universal, <laughs> that phenomenon. Um, and when I see teams humming, when I see teams that are effective, they're doing exactly what you said, which is being really thoughtful that even though our inclination is to fill our allotted airtime with talking, pushing, telling, advocating, that actually we get a lot more done if I use my airtime to ask a question or to, to be curious, because then you're having real and important and more nuanced conversation and like getting the work done um, versus, you know, all advocating and then getting the work done after. And it, it, it's, it's really tricky. You have to sort of make that case for people that it's worth it for me to spend in this hour meeting when we each have very little airtime, for me to spend my airtime asking a question is a hard sell at first. Um, but teams who get it right, I see that most of the time they're actually more spending a disproportionate amount of their time in inquiry and curiosity rather than advocacy. Um, I want to get into how you help people wrap their head around that. I just want to say on a side note, I'm super conscious of the fact that you are a master coach and I want to ask these great open-ended questions. And twice now I've just asked you like, closed questions and you've bounded off them beautifully but oh no I did not feel that at all I feel like you're asking beautiful questions and I am definitely not a master coach um, so yeah so how and this is something that I have wondered in my own coaching practice many times and and worked on in a variety of different ways but how do you help people develop those skills to ask questions so you've talked a little bit about research that exists you talked about 
what you know to be true about high functioning teams. But when you are there sitting with an executive, what are some of the ways that you can help engage them around that concept? Yeah, it's a really good question. So it's funny, and I'm sort of reflecting on your comment about calling me a master coach, and it, <laughs> it relates to the how I'll answer this question, which is that my stance when I am working with a CEO, when I am working with my students at Harvard Law School, when I'm doing a keynote or a speech, when someone introduces me as an expert, I cringe because that's not the stance I want to have. I don't feel like I'm walking into any space that I'm operating in as an expert. I feel like the person or people I'm talking to are the experts of their life and their field. And I have some really cool ideas that I have thought a lot about and spent, frankly, my whole career thinking a lot about, about how we can engage and influence and navigate our toughest conflicts more effectively. And so my stance is like, I'm just going to have a conversation with you about it and offer you some cool stuff. And it's really up to you whether you want to experiment with it and play with it. Um, And that stance is really important to me because I think that, and I, you know, I'm often on like panels or part of speakers, um, you know, like five days of speakers. And I'm one of the speakers where the person gets up and like presents themselves as this like guru or the, you know, the catchphrase now is like thought leader. And, and I, I find as an audience member, I just discount it like in half because I'm like, Oh, you're so full of yourself that I can't quite see through to the ideas. And for me, I just want to offer them some cool ideas that I think would be helpful. And it, it's really an invitation for them to kind of play in the sandbox with me if they want to. But if they're resistant or don't want to, I'm like, that's cool. Like, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not offended. I, I think this would help you. I'm actually not certain it'll help you. Uh, but I think it might. So why don't we play with it as like an experiment? I kind of think of it like we're doing like a science experiment. And then if that doesn't work, let's see what might. And actually, let's let's talk about what your reaction to it of what didn't work is. But, but what's true between you and me is like a lot of times it works. <laughs> um, and that's sort of the magic of it is that a lot of what we're, what I help people with, it turns out is not rocket science. It's not, um, it's not, it's not something that's, you know, totally outlandish. It's just not our natural instinct, particularly when we get sort of triggered or stressed or the stakes go really high. So that was a long way of answering your question. (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. There's so much in there. So I guess first I want to know, what does it look like to play in the sandbox with you? What are some ways that you might do that? Yeah, I will literally just say, um, so if I'm, let's say I'm helping a team. There's a team who's like, oh, you know, we're not operating all that well. The work we do is really important. We need to be much more high functioning. I'll say, great, I'm going to come watch a meeting. So I'll come watch yep. a meeting and I'll sort of sit in the corner. I'm not at the table. Typically I'm like in the corner. So I'm kind of invisible and I'm, I'm taking notes and um, I imagine it's sort of like being on reality TV. At first they're very conscious of me and soon they kind of forget I'm there and they go to their normal 
typically very unskillful habits. Um, and then kind of the next meeting, I'll say, okay, I'm going to observe for a bit, but then I'm going to call some timeouts. Um, and so I'm observing. And then when I see something, you know, space that I don't feel like I'm going to be shaming uh, any individual person, I'll sort of call a timeout and I'll be like, what if, like, let me give you some observations of what I'm seeing. And what if we tried X, Y, Z? And so, and, and sometimes I'll have sort of PowerPoint slides and do a little bit of a teach. Um, uh, or sometimes I'm just kind of verbally offering some ideas. And then it's, it's almost like a director's uh, chair. I'm like, okay, and take two, go. And I sort of send them off and just sort of watch them and see if they try on some of the stuff that, that we're doing. And I, I do that kind of repeatedly to just give them a chance to, to play with it. And then we'll pause and I'll debrief with them. Like, how did that go? How did that feel? What worked? What didn't? Um, and a lot, you know, the, the first time it's like, oh, that was clunky. That felt unnatural. And there's all sorts of resistance to it. And I'm like, great. Yeah. The first time you picked up a golf club or learned a new language or, <laughs> you know, tried a new recipe, it's clunky, it's weird. So let's keep trying and experimenting and just see how it goes. Um, so that's sort of one method that I use if I'm working with a team in particular. And, and again, most of the time they're like, oh yeah, that, that is so much more helpful. Um, and sometimes they're like, yeah, no, we don't like that. And that's also fine with me. I, I am not wed or evangelical to anything that I'm offering. I'm just really trying to help. Um, and that's also my stance. I'm trying to help them. And so we're just kind of working through it together um, and seeing how it goes. Um, and then I, and then if I can, I really like to have individual conversations with people to see how things are going and how different things people are trying are working or less or better for them, less well or better for them. It's so cool. Essentially you're giving people a space to a safe space to practice and to see what it's like to communicate in different ways, which they yeah. really don't get the chance to do. Yeah. And I very much frame it in that way of like, because it's true, most of the people I'm working with, you're all brilliant. You're all incredibly skillful. You're all high powered. So like, let's like, okay, great. That's our baseline. Um, and that you aren't perfect should not come as a surprise. So this is not the space to bring like your, uh, the sort of vision of yourself that you would like curate on social media. This is not the aspirational curated perfect version of yourself. Like what I want you to show up today with is where you're struggling, where it's harder, where your vulnerabilities are so that we can like up the game of, you know, either each person individually or this team. Um, and people, people get a, they kind of get on board with that. Because I think you're right. I think it's so rare in the worlds that we're living in and the spaces we're traveling and coaching in that there's any time to pause and be reflective, to be human, to be vulnerable. And I think people are really craving that and hungry for that. And so it, it deeply listen to. I frankly think that's a lot of what I'm doing in my coaching is like just giving space where someone is being deeply listened to, which is just in people are starving for it they just don't have people in their lives even their loved ones who just give them a good amount of space and time to feel really heard and listened to and seen in a very real way yes this is why I would like you to be sitting on my couch every evening so <laughs> I know me too that'd be so fun Move back to Boston <laughs> I know so when you think about people who who are able to assimilate or 
adopt this idea of asking more questions, of being more tuned into their team, are there attributes that are common or are, are there any elements of those people that enable them to do that more quickly? Are there people that surprise you? Uh, what does that yeah. look like? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that I see in the most effective leaders who do this well is just a curiosity about the world. They're, they're often the leaders who maybe they're in finance, but they also read voraciously about, you know, World War II. Like they have just varied interests and, and are really up on current events and they, you know, know another language or play an instrument or play a sport really well. Like I, I find there's a curiosity about the world that really successful leaders who are curious generally are then much more able to be curious about their colleagues and direct reports, et cetera. Um, And then the other, I would say, trait that I see in the most effective leaders who do this well is, you know, one that I'm sure will not surprise you, but just empathy, just the ability to imagine and feel what the world looks like from someone else's perspective and to and to do that meaningfully it's not sort of a passing like you know yeah i can imagine this is hard for you but really spending deep reflective time imagining that and sitting with people and and kind of letting them um share their perspective i i think those are sort of the two attributes. And and to be clear, these aren't necessarily all touchy-feely people. Like, I think that often gets conflated. I think people hear the word empathy and they get this vision of, you know, touchy-feely, fuzzy. Uh, and that's actually not always true. Sometimes, but that is not always true. I've seen very hard-nosed businessmen and women uh, who on this highly successful, who on the surface you might not imagine would be very empathetic, but but, but really, really are. You know, we've been talking about how executives can develop those skills to better listen to their uh, their teams, their organizations, to to better influence people. But what about uh, enabling uh, executives to be able to make better decisions for themselves? So, um, h- how do you work with people to actually influence themselves more effectively? And maybe it's around being able to listen to themselves. Yeah, I, I that's really interesting. I mean, it's funny because you asked the question about executives. And so I want to answer that. But where my head goes is I, you mentioned I also teach at Harvard Law School. And so I'm often in a position to be spending a lot of time in office hours and inside conversations with students. And these students who are about to be Harvard Law School graduates, so basically their ticket is written, you know, no matter what they want to do, if they want to go into law, if they want to go into policy, if they want to go save the world, if they want to be a Supreme Court justice, if they want to be a president, they probably will. Um, these are these are those students. Mm-hmm. And just spending time with them and seeing how many of them feel so trapped. They feel so just unable to make choices of what they actually want to do versus kind of be on the hamster wheel that they feel like they're on. And and as I carry this thread through, I think about many of the executives that I've coached, including some CEOs who feel that very same way. It's like you look at a CEO of a, you know, I have one 
who I coached. It was like a multi-billion dollar company who could do literally anything they wanted. And there was this sense of feeling just trapped and unable to make choices about their lives and what they really wanted to do and what actually makes them happy and brings them fulfillment and gives them meaning in their world. And so that's actually in my coaching work, both with my executive coaches, but also with my students is really interrogating that of like, what what are the stresses and pressures you're feeling to make you feel so constrained? And how do we sort of clear some brush of all of the outside uh, pressures on you to try to just see underneath all that, like, what do you care about? What matters to you? What gives you joy, meaning, purpose? And how do we let that voice just how do we turn up the volume of that voice just a little bit? And and listen, I want to be really clear. Some people don't have choices because if I'm looking at some of my law students, they've taken on $100,000 worth of debt. And so in some ways, they're, they've got to go somewhere and make a lot of money so they can pay off that student debt. Um, but, but it's interesting how I find that even, you know, I had a coachee who told me, you know, I've got $100 million in the bank. I could do whatever I want, but I don't feel like I have a single choice. And I'm like, oh my God, I could help you spend that $100 million and do whatever you want. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's interesting. So I, I end up spending a lot of my coaching time with them really trying to uncover, unpack, because it's so, there's just so many layers and cement around that voice that's telling them what they really care about and like what they really care about versus all of the other people and constituencies that they're sort of catering to. And and so um, that for me is the most meaningful coaching work, actually. What's challenging at times, at least for me, is often, you know, you only have you know, six sessions that have been, that's part of the engagement with whether or not it's an executive or senior level person. And you, there, there's really limited time ultimately in these one hour sessions to develop, to, to get to those really deep concepts. And if, if, if it's, if there's any challenge in developing rapport or having that person feel comfortable, you're just not going to get there. Yeah, agreed. So, what do you do to get to these very personal conversations early on so that you're making the most of the yep, time? Well, there are a couple things. So first of all, um, I, besides my students who I don't get to pick, um, I'm actually quite selective mm-hmm. about who I coach. So I was called in a few years ago to basically audition. It's kind of like a beauty contest. Uh, audition to coach the new executive director of a nonprofit that I cared very much about. I cared very deeply about this cause and donate money to this cause and was so thrilled that I might be able to coach the executive director of this organization. It was um, a really big deal for me. And I went in and I met with this person thinking like, I am going to do anything I can to coach this person because this organization means so much to me. And throughout the whole meeting, I, I felt no chemistry. I didn't feel rapport with this person. I don't think they felt rapport with me. I don't know. Um, but I left the meeting and I took myself out of contention because 
for me, I invest so much of myself in my coaching relationships that it really has to feel two way. Um, and I really have to feel like if I'm, if I'm coaching this person, I'm investing a lot of myself and I want, it's a, it's a relationship. Um, and so I only coach people that I feel like I can help them. And like, we have a sort of je ne sais quoi, we have a connection. So that's one thing. Um, and then the second thing is that I try as much as I can, although I agree you can't always do it, but to have my coaching engagements be six months, not six sessions. And so I get to have that longitudinal time with them. So I'm not feeling this panic of, I've got to get it all out by session two, because by session four, we're almost done, right? Like, which, I, which I have felt. I've had, the, I've had a succession um, relationship, but I, I try as much as I can to make it a six month. Um, and, and of the last four or five people I've coached, they've ended up being several year that we've sort of re-upped every six months. So they turn into several year relationships and, and that's really helpful. Um, and then the third thing I would say is even when it is, and sometimes I'm going to coach for a one hour session. It's like, it's like we're offering these people an hour of coaching and I'm like, well, let's do fast work <laughs> with them. Right. Um, and I, there's a technique that I use that was, offered to me by some therapists and colleagues at Harvard Law School, and it's called doubling. And it's this really interesting technique where you get up out of your chair and you stand almost behind the coachee, not completely behind them so that you're creeping them out, but you sort of stand kind of over their, um, over their shoulder. And when you speak, you're speaking from their internal voice. So you're sort of hypothesizing what might be happening for them. And then you say to them, I'm just going to say something and then you choose to do with what, I'm, what I've said what you want. You can either say, yeah, that's true. I do feel like I'm really trapped. Or you can take the double. I'm acting, acting as sort of their double is what we call it take the double and disagree with it. Say, no, 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 I'm, I don't hate that person. I actually really, oh gosh, maybe I love that person. Um, and, and that technique of just trying to jump into what I think is in their internal voice allows me to go really deep, really fast. Um, and, I, and I make it voluntary because some people do not like that technique and some people love it. And we spend an hour in that technique of me just hypothesizing what's happening for them. And they taking it or and running with it or sort of dismissing what I'm saying and and then running with what they actually feel. Um, and that helps me go deep pretty fast. That is so cool. I've never heard of that. Oh, we'll try it. You got to try it. Yeah. I imagine it could be really emotional. It can be. <laughs> I, I carry tissues. <laughs> um, but, it, but then I also want to be really clear that I'm not a therapist. So I, I'm, I'm helping them sort of uncover mm what's hard because I think you can't just tell someone to do something different. You need to understand who they are, how they got here, what makes them tick, what happened in their life and sort of in their childhood story to make them who they are and how they think because that's showing up all over the place. And some of those ways we think based on our life experiences, our collective life experiences, are serving us incredibly well, and some of them are getting in our way. And so that's a way for me to uncover some of what's getting in our way and why, so that we can sort of unpack and interrogate that to make then better, uh, sort of shift our mindsets, but then make better choices about our behaviors. You know, one of the, the lines here, along with sort of bleeding into therapy territory, is is the idea of consulting. And 
I think the reality is, at least in the work that I do, that nobody is hiring you just to ask them questions. They are also hiring you to get your perspective on, as you've talked about, research, but also what you've seen happen in other organizations and with other executives. And that, at its heart, is consulting. So how do you balance that role of both the the coaching and the consulting? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I'm just really clear up front when I'm starting a relationship, we sort of talk about like, what do you imagine coaching is? And what do you want out of a coach? And then I share kind of the way I work, which is exactly how you described it, which is my job is to help you. And so to do that, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I'm going to uncover a bunch of stuff for you. And then... I'm going to sit in this with you and problem solve with you and be a partner to bounce ideas off of and, and yeah, offer my perspective. And I want to be really clear. Sometimes my ideas are terrible. So you shouldn't take those ideas, right? Like I am, I am not wed to anything. You should not see me as like a guru, but it is true that based on just the reality, because sadly I am not in my twenties anymore that I've got, you know, 17 years of experience now working in all different industries, working at very senior levels and with ton, I mean, at this point, probably hundreds of companies. And so I've seen a thing or two and I can help as just as you mentioned, Sarah, I can help you see like, what have I seen that works and where have I seen people try exactly what you're talking about and sort of fallen into some pitfalls. Um, so I do really blend that coaching and consulting and we just talk about that up front because that's often what people want very much as you say. They don't, sometimes just people want a coach just to ask them questions and have them uncover their own answers and that's great. Um, but because much of my, I, I'm not just a coach, um, much of my work is consulting, mm-hmm. I really marry the two. Yeah. So it is good to sort of talk about that in the beginning or at least get a sense of it in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how has all this work with thousands of people and hundreds of companies influenced your own career decisions, if if at all? (laughs) Yeah, it's such a good question. Well, I think... First of all, I think the old adage of, you know, the, what is it, the shoemaker's children have no shoes. Um, I do, sometimes I say out loud to myself, like, God, I really need a coach. <laughs> um, because right. even as I will spend five sessions in a day helping people to say no, I struggle with saying no. Um, And so actually my New Year's resolution just this very year, which I never make, but this year I decided to make one, is to have more good no's and fewer bad yeses. Um, Because yes is like my favorite word and I am just completely programmed to say yes um, for all sorts of identity reasons of wanting to be helpful. And, And so part of it is is try and i and because of the work i do i luckily get to have a lot of colleagues who happen to be brilliant and incredibly skillful coaches so i try to sort of draw upon them to help me but in terms of influencing my own career i think i think i've just always been unafraid to say no to the clear hamster wheel path and have really sought a career but also just at Uh, different decision nodes within my career, I've sought paths that I feel like 
will just be really meaningful to me. Um, and I realize I, that, I, you know, that shows a lot of privilege that I have lots of choices to do that. And so I'm, I'm also really well aware of that. And I'm really sort of interrogating the, the privilege that I bring in, in being able to make a lot of choices. But, you know, when I was coming out of law school, it, especially the law school that I went to, you, you, had no choice you had to go be a corporate lawyer or maybe a government lawyer but that was like like choose path a or b government lawyer corporate lawyer um and i just i just did not want to do that and i was really clear about that and i would go and meet with career services every week and every week they had nothing for me but i would diligently go and see if we might think about something else and then i took a, a mediation class that just changed the whole trajectory of my career. And I realized that I don't know what the career path looked like. I don't know how you become a mediation or negotiation expert, but that's what I was going to do. I was going to go down that path and work in that field and figure it out. And I had the incredible good fortune of uh, being able to do that. It's great. And we are all so glad that you did. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad I did. Yeah. I <laughs> Well, I'm glad that I was able to con you into saying yes to do this podcast. So I really appreciate it. Uh, but so um, well, Debbie, thanks so much for spending some time speaking with me. And I hope that I can get you back on sometime to continue the conversation because there's about 10 million other things I want to ask you. I would love to. And thank you for asking me. And I think what you're doing is super cool. So well, thanks. And for it. anybody who's interested in getting some coaching or learning about uh, workshops around uh, difficult conversations and feedback, you should go and look at Triad Consulting. So uh, thanks so much, Debbie. Thank you.